Andrew and I are reading uh, Nehemiah 13. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those foreign, of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked to leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all of the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute their to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on that day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates, that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded that the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. 
And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such woman? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Elishib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have des desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus, I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. This has been the Lord's word. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, there's a few of us here, but uh, to the majority of you at home, good morning, and thank you for joining us. Uh, I actually feel a little bit nervous taking on this passage today. This is, is quite the grand finale for this book of Scripture. And uh, boy, there's some lessons for us to learn here, some incredibly important lessons. This just might be, in fact, the most important chapter in all of this book. Uh, this might just be the most important message for us to grasp and for us to get a hold of in this whole series as, uh, of Nehemiah that we've worked our way through. So let me start by just praying, and then we're going to plunge into that story again, review it, and uh, see what, uh, what the big point for us to really grasp here is. So Lord, I pray your Spirit's guidance through this passage of Scripture, through this narrative, this story, and God, I pray that uh, we would draw out of this story these, these real events that took place and, and take those lessons into our own lives. Take those lessons into our own church. Take those lessons into our own heart and, and into this community. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So, are you ready to run into this? Because it is. It's going to kind of smack us in the face. Uh, I, I told Kim yesterday that I'm probably going to be shouting a little bit this morning because I do that. I just get excited and uh, I, I get pretty involved in the things that I preach. So the book of Nehemiah, the story of Nehemiah, it's, I, I'm going to just do a little quick review here to bring us up to speed to this last chapter, to this great finale. The book of Nehemiah, it starts with Nehemiah in the city of Susa which is in modern-day Iraq, it starts off with Nehemiah as the cupbearer to the king of Persia, Artaxerxes. It starts off with the people back in Jerusalem living in disgrace, living under great oppression, living in great trouble, we are told. And for 175 or so years, these people had been living amongst this rubble of a broken-down city, Jerusalem. And not only was this disgrace, uh, disgraceful condition 
that the people were living in. Not only was it a physical condition, but, but they were also living in great vulnerability and danger and exposure as well. And the people of Jerusalem were very much being taken advantage of in this condition in which they were living. They were abused. They were under the mercy uh, and, and under the lordship, actually, of, of others. And they were suffering and they were weak and they were very much in a broken state. And in Jerusalem's weakness, men like Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite had taken great advantage of these people, and they were profiting. They were really profiting from the situation there, from the hardship there. And as we have studied through the book of Nehemiah, we have found that the the weak, uh, desperate, disadvantaged condition of the people of Jerusalem, it was not only a physical condition. It was also very true of them spiritually and their spiritual condition. They had wandered far from God. They had lost touch with God's word, with God's will for them. They had lost touch with any sense of worshiping and celebrating God among them. And indeed, this is a lot of the the, the circumstances that led them into this disgraceful position. They had, in short, they had a lot of spiritual rubble as well as physical rubble around them. Now, to make the whole story rather short, Nehemiah then is led by God to come to Jerusalem and to lead the people, his people, the, the Jewish people, into a revival. And he leads them into rebuilding the city walls. He leads them into rebuilding their own faith. He leads them into the renewal of, of both their lives physically and their lives spiritually. And all the people pull together in an amazing way through the course of this story, and they rebuild the walls of the city in in 52 days. It's basically nonstop work in which everybody is involved. And then as they complete that, then they, they begin to work also to rediscover God's word together. They experience God's goodness together. They learn again to celebrate God, to feast and festival with God. They come in corporate confession together and they receive God's forgiveness together. They recommit themselves to God's word and God's will together. They make corporate promises together to to not neglect the priests, not neglect the temple, not neglect the worship and the giving of their tithes and offerings, to not neglect, to not neglect their God and their relationship with him and to include God in all of their lives and to give him that central position in their lives and to make God and to make honoring God and loving God and serving God their greatest priority. That's literally what they do. They do that. They do all that. They commit to all that. And everything's good. (laughs) It it all unfolds. It all happens. And these people are suddenly in a good place. The city is in a good place. They're greatly experiencing God's blessing. They've been rebuilt. They've been reformed. They've been revived. And they're living now behind the protection of the rebuilt walls. They're living behind the protection of God's law and God's will and God's purposes for them. And they're thriving. They're thriving. Now, it wasn't easy to get there. (laughs) And as we've worked through the story, you'll remember that. It wasn't easy for them to get there. And certainly, Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite fought them every step of the way. These two foreign strongmen who prayed on Jerusalem in her weakness. 
And right from the very beginning of Nehemiah's arrival in Jerusalem, we are told that when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of Israel. And when they found out that Nehemiah's intention was to actually lead the people in the rebuilding of the walls, we're told that that they mocked them. They mocked them and ridiculed them. When, when, when these two, Tobalit, Tob- Tobiah and Sanballat, saw that Nehemiah actually began work to build the walls, we're told that they became angry. They actually became angry at that. And they were greatly incensed, it says. And they, and they went on to say, in the presence of their associates and the army of Samaria, you know, what are these feeble Jews doing, they asked. Will they restore the wall? Will they offer their sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble? And, and then after, after that, they began to plot to come and fight against Jerusalem and to stir up trouble against it. They said that they would come against and actually kill the Israelites and put an end to their work, their work of restoration, their work of spiritual revival. These men and their associates, they they did not want this wall or these people to be rebuilt or restored. They did not want Jerusalem strong. They did not want the Israelites protected. They did not want the people restored nor revived. They wanted to keep them weak. They wanted to keep them vulnerable and disheartened and demoralized. That was, in the end, profitable to Sanballat and Tobiah. They wanted to keep God out of the lives of these Israels. They wanted to keep God away as their Lord so that they could be the lords over Israel. And they were willing to go to rather extreme measures to keep it that way. But in the end, they couldn't stop it from happening. And as Nehemiah notes... I mean, here's one of the core verses in the whole book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah notes that by the mighty hand of the Lord, who is great and awesome, I love that, by the mighty hand of the Lord, who is great and awesome, they completed the work. And God had provided for them their protection. And then in gratefulness and gratitude to God, the people gave themselves to God. They gave themselves to God's laws and to God's ways as they opened up again the word of God, and they began to reinstitute worship and feasting and festivaling with God. And that, in a nutshell, is the story of the book of Nehemiah, at least the first 12 chapters. And then for 12 years, I mean, this is a long time, for 12 years, when that was all completed, for 12 years, Nehemiah stayed with the people, and he led and he guided the people. They carried on in their reform for 12 years. They were faithful to God, and they were blessed by God, and they prospered. They were protected and preserved by God. And what a great story. What a happy story. And oh my goodness, it would be nice if the story ended there. (laughs) But it doesn't. After 12 years, it's one of the things I love that Nehemiah sort of records these dates all the way through so that we can keep track of how long things were. But after 12 years, after the reformation and the revival of these people, well, it was not only complete, it was now established, right? For 12 years, that's kind of established. 
It's becoming well-rooted now, right? 12 years? After 12 years, Nehemiah returns to Susa to continue his service to the king of Persia. And then he left. And when he left in his absence over the course of just a few years, things begin to fall apart. And after several years, Nehemiah returns then again. And you know what he finds? He finds that the house of God is not only being neglected, it's being abused. I've got some pictures here. We're going to put the first picture for you. No longer, you see, no longer are the people paying their tithes and their gifts to the temple. And therefore, the priests and the Levites who are supposed to teach the people and offer sacrifices to God and lead the people in worship and festival before God, they've all essentially been let go, essentially laid off, right, if you will. And then they're now like working in the fields in order to make ends meet. They're not being supported in those roles in the temple. The singers who were to lead the worship and the gatekeepers who were to provide protection and security, not only for the city, but also for the temple. Their their functions cannot be supported without the support of the people. So there are no more festivals. Now there is no more worship, which of course means that the word of God is not being heard. It's not being taught. And you know what happens when you stop teaching and speaking the word of God? It stops being followed. That's what happens. And all the feasts and the celebrations, they begin to just cease. Take a look at the next picture. They, they were buying and selling again in the, on the Sabbath day as well, instead of worshiping God. It's like, it's like well, we're not going to run the temple anymore and worship anymore, so we've got a whole day. What are we going to do with it? So they just pick up commerce again. They're, they're back working again. But, but the fourth commandment of the Lord of the Ten Commandments says that six days you shall labor and work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord. Sabbath just means rest, by the way. It means literally rest. Sabbath day is the rest of the Lord for you and for the God, for your God. And, and, and you shall not do any work on it, it says. Right? Six days. You've got six days to work. One day... God gifts us with rest, and not just rest, but refreshment with Him to honor Him, to recognize Him, to love Him, to worship Him, and to to realize that we can trust Him, that we don't have to push seven days straight through, right? We can rest in His trust. He's providing it all anyway, so let's trust Him on this seventh day as well. But it's like the people fall into this idea of, no, we want to work the seventh day too. We want to trade the seventh day too. We want to make hay the seventh day too. So that, you know, I got bills to pay. They're piling up. I've got ends to make meat. And I've got that, you know, that thing that I want to buy. I've got that ox, that cart, that, that, that donkey, whatever that I'd like to purchase so I can get ahead. My toys. <laughs> so they keep working. They pour into more work since they're not worshiping the Lord anymore on the Sabbath. Next slide. The people even, even the leaders, are now giving their children again in marriage to foreigners. And they are, and here's the danger of that. Again, this is not a racist thing. This is a spiritually dangerous thing. What's happening now is that this is causing them to become assimilated into foreign cultures and also foreign gods and idols all over again. And he 
Nehemiah even throws out the example of Solomon. He even notes that this was the bane of Solomon's existence, right? Wise King Solomon, popular King Solomon, with his hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of foreign wives, who finally, who he finally allowed to lead him astray and away from God. And he's warning them. If this happened to Solomon and all of his wisdom, what do you, it's going to happen to you too, is what he's saying. Next slide. On top of all of that, the storerooms of the temple are now empty, and since we've cleared out the storerooms, guess, guess who's in the empty storerooms of the temple? Guess who's been allowed to actually physically move into the temple of God and take up residence in God's house. Tobiah the Ammonite. That's who. He's moved right in. It's almost like they thought, well, the place is empty now and we probably could maybe you know, make some money off of it if we rented it out. Let's let Tobiah in here. Let's bring him in since we're not using it. It'll help pay the bills. And that's what happens. The foreign oppressive enemy who opposed the welfare of Israel is living in the house of God. Setting up house in the house of God. Next picture. The Sanballat the Horonite. The other enemy. He has succeeded in marrying off his daughter to the grandson of the high priest of Israel. He has now strategically married himself and his family into the most, well, probably prestigious, one of the, one of the more powerful, decision-making, influential families of Israel, the family of the high priest himself. And he, Tobiah, or Sanballat, was exploiting that relationship, of course, for his own profit. That's what happens. So Tobiah and Sanballat, here they are again. It's like we haven't heard of them for a few chapters now, several chapters. It looks like we're sort of past the problem of Tobiah and Sanballat. But here they are again. They couldn't stop the building of the walls, but they didn't stop pursuing a way to still take over and dominate the city and the people and keep them down. It's almost as though they said to themselves, if we, can't, if we can't keep it weak, then we'll work long and we'll work quietly to actually take over the stronghold for ourselves. We'll spend years at it if we have to. We'll keep at it. We'll work quietly and subversively. We'll work relentlessly until the walls are ours and the gatekeepers are ours and the temple is ours and the city is ours and the people are once again ours. Ten years if we have to. More if we have to. We'll lull them into a sense of complacency. We'll make them think that they've actually gotten what they really wanted. A wall. <laughs> a, a reasonably restored city. A reasonably restored life. And then we will slowly, steadily take it all over. Take it all back again in such a way that they'll hardly even notice that we've taken it. You know what? 
here's the truth of it. If only, if only Israel would have been as diligent and committed, right, and intentional as Sanballat and Tobiah were, this wouldn't have happened. If only they would have continued to live by the mighty hand of the Lord who is great and awesome. <laughs> if only they'd have done that. But instead, as they step into this prosperity that came to them by the mighty hand of the Lord who is great and awesome, it's like they began to become complacent. They're like, oh great, we've got lives back again. Great, thanks God, we're going to now go live our lives. That's essentially what happens. And the Israelites now are right back on track to becoming a controlled, abused, despised, spiritually wandering, lost people all over again. They're right back on track to being distanced from their God who loves them and wants to bless them again. They're right back on track to spiritual bankruptcy and to being lorded over and taken advantage of by Sanballat, Tobiah, and the likes. Right? So, what can we learn from this? What must we learn from this? What's the great moral of this story? Well, in a nutshell, here it is. Here's the big, big thought here. God gives us, he builds around us walls of protection. God gives us his word and his ways and his will for us to live by and to protect us and to bless us for our good in a pretty dangerous and messed up world, which, by the way, we contributed to making it like that. But if we give, if we give the keys to the gate of those walls to our enemy, they're rendered useless. That's the point. If we give access behind the walls to the enemy, well, the walls of protection don't do much good for us. And if if we possess and we know the very words and will of God and his ways, but do not follow them, if we instead neglect them, forget them, ignore them, doubt them, disdain them, question them, they will be of no benefit to us. And we will fall prey to our enemy. And then the Tobias and the Sambalots of this world, they will make their way into our lives. They will take up residence right here inside of us. They will set up their furniture and furnishings within us in what is supposed to be huh? the temple of the living God, His Holy Spirit. That's what will happen. If we put down our tools and surrender our weapons and open the gates of our defenses and abandon the walls and the watchtowers, they all become worthless. The point is, if we neglect to fail anything that is designed to protect us, it becomes worthless. If I have a smoke detector in my house with dead batteries in it that I have neglected to test and change, it's useless. If I have a seatbelt in my car but don't wear it, it's useless. If I have a helmet strapped to the side of my bike, don't put it on my head. It's useless. If I have a safety guard on my power saw but take it off, it's useless. Am I making my point? This is the problem. 
And if we only remember, and if we only bother to give ourselves to or place ourselves under the mighty hand of the Lord who is awesome and great when we're in trouble, right? If we only do it when we find ourselves in great trouble and then when we're out of trouble by his mighty and awesome hands and the miraculous things that he does to save us and go, oh great, I'm I'm free again. I can go do what I want. We're just going to end up in this never-ending cycle, right? This up and down, up and down, up and down, blessing and curse, blessing and punished, blessing and having to be chastised over and over again. And if that happens, well, what's being proved is that our enemy is more diligent and patient and cunning than we are and persistent. And it need not and ought not to be like that. If God warns us against things, against pitfalls, against vices and desires and addictions and lusts, if he warns us against attitudes and behaviors that will hurt us and that will lead to our demise and our destruction, and if we somehow ignore them, right? We render those things then useless in our lives. They won't do what they're designed to do. And we will surely fall prey to our enemy. And we will give him this incredible foothold in our lives. Stronghold in our lives. And we will stumble along. The wall was intended to keep Sanballat and Tobiah and the likes out of Jerusalem. It was intended to protect the Israelites from their abusers and their influences and harm. But if they give them the keys to the city, the protection's gone. The temple, the temple, it it was to be the house of God and it was supposed to help the people keep God as their focus and the focus of their whole community. But if they remove God and they remove the articles of worship from the temple and invite in their enemy, then the temple... Well, it's it's just utterly counterproductive, isn't it? And I don't think that God will tolerate that kind of thing for very long. The laws of God were supposed to keep Israel close to God and preserve their faith. But that only works if you follow the laws of God. So, Christians, it always comes to this, doesn't it? So, church, so, us, followers of Jesus. Here's the thing. It's all true for us too. It's all true for us too. You see, God has given us protection as well. God has in fact given us what the New Testament calls armor. (laughs) We've got to put on our armor. Put on the armor. We must wear it constantly, daily. Ephesians, end of that little epistle, Ephesians chapter 6, Paul tells us, he tells the Ephesians and through them he tells us, he says, finally, I'm wrapping the letter up, finally. Be strong in the Lord. Right? We've got this one up there. Good. Be strong in the Lord and His might. Put on the whole armor of God 
that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, right, in light of that, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayers and supplication to that end. Keep alert. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Right? It's not enough to just know about it. <laughs> it's, it's not even enough to just have those things in our possession, to just have that armor in our possession. We've got to wear it, right? Armor does you no good if it's just sitting on the ground or in your closet. We've got to put it on and put it on constantly. You see, Here's the thing, when our enemy attacks, he's not going to wait for us to get our armor on in order to do it. He's not going to come to us and say, hey, in about 15 or 20 minutes or so, I'm really going to come at you. So maybe you want to get your armor on so we can kind of have a fair fight here, right? He doesn't do that. In fact, he does the exact opposite. He's going to come at us just when we're not ready, just when we don't have it on, just when we're not expecting it. Or even worse, even worse, he's really going to come at us when we're at the point of maybe not really even being sure anymore if there actually is an enemy <laughs> or a spiritual battle, you know? He's really going to come at us when we've written that off as, yeah, it's just allegorical or hypothetical or spiritual myth or legend or even just silly religious superstition. Ah, man, he's going to come at us so hard then. Then he's got us. And oh my goodness, he's got us. And we will fall and great will be the fall. And you know what? Here's the thing. If whole churches, and it happens, if whole churches fall like that, you know what becomes of them? They become fish and chip shops. That's what becomes of them. Because they, They've got nothing to feed people, so you might as well feed fish and chips out of them. That's what happens to them. The armor works, but only if we wear it. Only if we wear it. If we leave it at home, it's not going to work. If we only carry it around in a backpack, it's not going to work. We've got to constantly clothe ourselves with it. Suit up in it daily and even throughout the day committing ourselves to putting on that belt of truth and living in truth 
pure, honest, open truth, speaking truth, daring to live by truth. Even truth of and about ourselves. Even if it includes truth about our own failures. Live in truth. God's truth. And the breastplate of righteousness. Put it on. Daily, constantly. And live right. Live rightly. Live righteously. You know, just living rightly, it will save you from all kinds of trouble in life. We get into trouble when we stop living rightly. And to fit our feet with the readiness of the gospel of peace. You know, to, to, to bear with us and wear peace. And be bearers of peace, messengers of peace. You know, blessed are the peacemakers. They, they actually inherit the earth. And the helmet of salvation. Oh my God, I'm so glad that he has that one be the helmet. I mean, that, what's the most critical part of your place, your body that protects your head? Right? Put on the helmet of salvation. That's critical. The grace, the forgiveness, the love, the healing, the restoration, the atonement of our God in and over our lives. We've got to wear it and live it. The shield of faith. And carry it and stand behind it and hold it up. The powerful hope of belief, that's the shield of faith. The powerful hope of trust in a God who we know acts for us. Practice it, and it just gets stronger and bigger. And the sword of the Spirit, the very Word of God. And it strikes me that to live with and to arm ourselves with and to, to fit ourselves with that sword of the Spirit, it's not just for fighting off things. We also turn that sword of the Word of God upon ourselves too and plunge it right through that it might dig deep into our lives, right? The Word of God like that double-edged sword piercing us deep, dividing soul and sunder and changing us, impacting us deep into our lives and shaping us there, touching us there, right? And then to pray on all occasions. Pray all kinds of prayers and supplications, making requests to God. You know, one of the amazing things about the whole book of Nehemiah is that it's just drenched in prayer. From the beginning, it starts in prayer, and all the way through 12 chapters, it's pray, prayer, prayer, prayer. 13th chapter, no prayer! Have you, did you notice that? No prayer in the 13th chapter. It stopped. And that's a big reason why all of these things came. They backed off on that stuff. Another one of the big things that God provides us for our protection is just His laws, His statutes, His precepts, His ways. And you know what? They're not intended to inhibit us. I hate it when people look at the laws of God and go, oh man, that's just so restrictive. It's not about restriction. It's actually about freedom. <laughs> that's what they're about. I remember years ago, there was a Jenny Craig weight loss ad campaign that was huge. And they talked about th this sort of a thing, only in connection with dieting and exercise. And they talked about how this, this program, it's not about restrictions. It's actually about freedom and living light and, 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 and living healthy and living increase, with increasing ability. And God's law is the same thing. They're not about restrictions. They're about freedom. Freedom from vices, freedom from self-centeredness, freedom from lack of control and being under control to other forces. 
It's freedom from fear. It's freedom from anxiety. It's freedom from hate. And so many other things. You know, in, in the Old Testament, they, they, they started to misuse the law. And they started to become very legalistic about the minutia of the law. And they started to forget about the spirit of the law, the intent of the law, the heart of the law. And, and a, much of the New Testament is, is, is about sort of bringing back the very spirit and heart and intent of the law. And the New Testament talks often about the spirit of the law, and the spirit of the law is what? The spirit of the law, the heart of the law is, is love. It's all about love. That's our law. Essentially, it's love. That's our protection that will set us free. Love God and love others. And, and, and what does love look like? See, that's the important question to ask there is what, what then does love look like? Well, love looks like humble obedience to God's will for us. That's what love looks like. That's what love looks like. Love looks like this. I mean, I could follow through the Ten Commandments with some of the you know, more, more, more overt sort of commands, but here's also what love looks like. It looks like abstaining from all appearances of evil. That's what love looks like. It looks like being patient towards others, as Paul calls us to in 2 Timothy. That's what love looks like. It looks like avoiding troublemakers or being a troublemaker. That's what love looks like. It looks like doing all things without mourning or disputing. It looks like honoring those who govern. It looks like living at peace with everyone in so much as it depends upon you. It looks like not repaying evil for evil. It looks like not being proud but being willing to associate with people of low position. It looks like not taking revenge against others. It looks like overcoming evil with good. It looks like owing no one anything except a continuing debt to love each other. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law, Paul says. Love the Lord your God and love others as yourself. Love defined by obedience to God's law, right? That's our wall of protection. That is our hedge of protection. And Nehemiah, this whole series, this whole book, it shouts at us, stand behind those walls and daily give yourself over to those things. Right? That's what love looks like. I have a friend um, who spent a lot of years in AA and has found some good, solid recovery. I remember talking with him a few years ago because he goes to meetings every day, sometimes twice a day. And it's like he's, he's had recovery for like 10 years, goes to meetings every day. And I remember asking him one time, he said, did you really need to go to a meeting every day? And his reply to me was amazing. He says, probably not. He says, but I have no idea which day it is that I will desperately need that meeting and the encouragement and the focus 
that it provides for me. So I better go every day. Because if I don't one day and that's the day that I'm hit, I'm attacked, I'm assaulted by my enemy, the repercussions are huge for me. And he talked about how in, in, a, in a week he'll lose his car. In two weeks he'll lose all of his close relationships. In three weeks he'll lose his home. The repercussions are great. So it keeps him diligent. And we need to realize the very same thing. The repercussions are great. And we need to daily, we need to go to our daily meetings, only ours are with God. Our daily sit down with God, our daily putting on of all of that armor, our daily dwelling in His Word, our daily submitting to Him, to His loving will for us. We need to daily do that. Now, can I get through one day without it? Probably. But if I start stacking up a few of those here and there, man, those are the times when the enemy is going to aim his sights at me. So I better do it every day because I don't know which day he's going to assault me. So be ready every day. And you know what? Not only will you be ready, you will also enjoy life more because you will be enjoying the Lord of your life more and the very purpose for which you were created to enjoy Him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, I thank You for this incredibly pertinent message. And Lord, I pray that we would all take it to heart and that we would be moved and encouraged to just take up that armor daily. Take up those disciplines daily to dwell in you and to stand in your protection that we might grow by the mighty hand of our God who is great and awesome. Lord, in Jesus' name, keep us there. Keep us there. And I know that you will even, you will even chasten us there if necessary. But Lord, help us to just stay there in peaceful surrender to you and love to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you.